I remember when uh, God really started getting a hold of my heart. Um, I was about 21, 22 years old. I had grown up in, in a Methodist church and attended church 45, 50 weeks a year. It was kind of just what we did on Sunday morning. And I would have said I had a great foundation for a relationship with Christ, but it wasn't until I started attending uh, church uh, with my then fiance and, and soon-to-be wife that, uh, that I started to hear about a relationship with Jesus Christ and decided I, I didn't have one and I really wanted to have one and uh, began steps uh, following that to develop that relationship, to grow in that relationship, to be involved in studying God's Word and to begin serving and to begin doing these various things. And, and interestingly left, I had spent most of my life trying to blend in. I had spent most of my life trying to be towards the top of, of the crowd, so to speak, but not at the very top. I didn't want to get a lot of extra attention necessarily. I just wanted to, to kind of blend in with a social group, and I kind of moved from one social group to another. Um, and so I started doing the same thing in, in the church, you know, and, and I started to really feel this tension in my life because at the time I was working at an industrial hose and uh, hydraulic hose and belts and shivs and just oil field type stuff predominantly, some construction, that type of thing. The place was called Hose and Rubber Supply. And I started in the warehouse there as I was about 19 years old, I think. Worked a summer in the warehouse, then moved in, started working on the phones. And as you can imagine, an industrial hose warehouse uh, might introduce some tension into this budding walk with Christ that I was having. In this warehouse environment, I learned a lot of new words in the first couple of months there. I, I learned how to use some other words in ways that I had never considered before. And because I had always sought to blend in, I blended in in that environment as well. And then came to Christ, then began a relationship with Christ, began to feel this great amount of tension between Monday through Friday from 7 to 5, and the rest of my life, where I was really growing in this relationship with Christ. And, and uh, things sort of came to a head when there was a bachelor party uh, that was on the horizon for one of the people that worked there. And I was not a bachelor, but about half of the people that were going to be going to this bachelor party were not bachelors either. And I knew the things that were going to happen there, and they went against the commitments that I'd made to my wife, and they went against the commitments that I had made to Christ. And I realized that this was not an area where I was going to have to, I was going to be able to blend in. I was going to have to stand out. And I remember being very nervous about that, because I knew the question was, you're going to be there, right, Mark? And I remember I finally said, no. I'm sorry, guys. I can't go. I can't do that. And I didn't just leave it there. I told them why. And I tried to do it in such a way that, that wasn't in their face, but, but also so that it was clear that, that it was just not compatible with who I was as a person. And I'll never forget, as I walked away, there was no jeering. There was no sneering. Uh, somehow I had built enough rapport with them that they respected the decision and didn't feel condemned and judged, but but respected the decision. And about 20 minutes later, another guy came out and said, I'm not going to go either. I was on the fence. But when I heard you stand for what you believe in and the commitments you've made, I decided I wasn't going to go either. And I got to tell you, that was not something that had ever crossed my mind. Um, but, but it was very meaningful, very meaningful moment. And uh, interestingly enough, he had invited me to a Bible study at, at one point um, as well, and we had, had built some fellowship together. And it was really uh, a wonderful 
experience, uh, choosing to stand out. And I don't tell you that to be the hero of that story, but to, to illustrate a really important point. We're starting a new sermon series here, and it's titled Stand. And the subtitle is Stories of Courage. So we're going to be looking at stories of courage, and we're going to be looking at specifically the book of Daniel and reading through that. We won't necessarily go through it right in order, but we will look at five different stories from the book of Daniel. So if you uh, would like to pick up Daniel and start reading through it and getting familiar with it, do some study Bible stuff or get online and do some research and see how Daniel fits all together, uh, I think you would really be blessed and it will bring a lot more to the table um, because there's so much here that I'm just going to be covering sort of the third. 30,000-foot view. But if you spend some time in Daniel over the next few weeks and reading it and getting familiar with it and getting acquainted to it, I think God will really apply it to your life um, as we do that. And so we're going to be focusing on these stories of courage. And I define courage as doing the right thing even when it's hard, even when it's hard. Uh, in our family, we often pray that, that our family, that our boys, that we as individuals and we as a family will have the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it, even if it's hard. And so we're going to be looking at this. Uh, I always like to give credit where credit is due. This series was inspired by uh, Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor of Life Church. And, um, and I heard this and thought, this is one that has just really resonated with me. Maybe because I had always spent most of my life uh, trying to blend in, and it really encouraged me to stand out. Maybe it's because I think Christians, uh, we, we tend to be on one end of the spectrum or the other here. We either never stand out, or we stand out a lot, and, and even stand out in a way that is, is sort of flagrant or sort of adversarial. And so one of the things that we're going to talk a lot about is this idea that if you compromise on the wrong things at the wrong time, in the wrong way, or for the wrong reasons, it can cost you more than you can ever imagine. So we need to be a people who take a stand. However, we need to stand for the right things at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons. Because when we do that, when we stand, and we stand for the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons, that has the ability to change a life, to change a family, to change a community, maybe even change the world. History is full of examples of people who stood for the wrong things in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. But it is also full of examples of people who stood for the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. And Daniel provides us some great insight into this. So our emphasis is going to be on standing for the right things. Remember, wisdom is knowing what to do. Courage is doing it, even if it's hard. Wisdom gives us the ability to stand for the right things in the right way at the right time for the right reason. So we will see both in this series. We want to be a people who always speak the truth in love, not find some Bible-shaped club to beat people over the head with. I have yet to hear that conversion story of the person that said, oh, you know, it was a snarky Facebook post, or it was a nasty comment on social media, or it was somebody, uh, you know, beating me over the head with Scripture that brought me to faith in Christ. No, it's typically love. It's typically understanding. It's typically compassion that draws people in. When people feel like they have been heard and understood, then they're open to hear what we have to say and to receive from us. In fact, social media is, is an area where I think uh, I've seen things move really far in the wrong direction since social media came out. And as I look out over this, I know there are some of you that have nothing to do with it. God bless you. Don't start now. 
But those of us who are in that space and who are in that world and have social media accounts and, and, and be mindful, be wise. In fact, I talk about the serenity prayer. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I, I ran across an interesting version recently. It says, God grant me the serenity to not read the comments and the courage to not read the comments and the wisdom to not read the comments. And it has to do with the, oftentimes the post is great, whatever the post is, but you start reading the comments and there are just so many people on, on the farthest ends of the spectrums just duking it out, battling each other back and forth. So we're not talking about, about social media, taking a stand on social media necessarily. We're talking more about speaking the truth in love. We're talking about being a people who are intentionally focused on reaching others for Christ and giving them a place to belong and helping them grow in their faith. That's our mission here at Linwood, that we would be a people who do that as we become a family of families. And so I believe this has the potential to be a life-changing series for you or for someone you know. For you as you find the courage to take a stand for what matters most, for what you value most, or as you maybe have the ability to give that courage to somebody else or, or to step over the line, take a risk with someone and invite them to church or share your faith with them or witness with them. Or maybe it will be something where you're in your workplace and you take a stand for what you believe in there and others find the courage to do the same thing. Today we're going to talk about standing out for God, standing out for God. We'll also look at things like standing up for what's right, standing strong for what matters most, standing in faith and standing firm in the fire. So let's begin. Let's look at Daniel chapter 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but I'll break it up. Uh, We'll go a few verses, and then we'll stop and talk about it and go a few verses more. This is on page 1369, if you've got one of those blue Bibles that's in the seat in front of you. And uh, we're, we're reading the book of Daniel. We have every reason to believe that Daniel himself is the author of this. Daniel, uh, one of the five major prophets. Um, if, if you uh, understand that terminology, the Bible is grouped together into these, sunk, these uh, sections or chunks. And the major prophets is one of those, Daniel being one of the major prophets. It happens to be in the crisp pages of your Bible, as I'll often call them. Most people uh, that spend a good time, a good amount of time in the Word, spend a lot of time in Genesis and Exodus, and then things get pretty pretty crisp until Psalms and Proverbs, and then there's another chunk that's pretty crisp until we get into the New Testament. Um, but Daniel happens to be there in, uh, in those crisp pages of the Bible um, and, and speaks about a time in Israel's history where they had been uh, taken from their homeland uh, into Babylon, and they are living in exile. So let me read the first uh, five verses here, and then we'll pause and, uh, and talk through what's going on. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. 
So, so this is sort of a historical uh, maybe context that, that you can see. If you want to read more about this, you can go uh, to Second Kings chapter 24 where you read about these happening in the historical books of the Old Testament. Um, but really, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we don't get a lot of backstory on him, but history tells us that he is one of the most ruthless, one of the, the most war-hungry, one of the most oppressive kings. Uh, when Saddam Hussein was was sort of reaching the pinnacle of his power and and his influence and his reign of terror, uh, they would point back and say he's sort of like Nebuchadnezzar. He, he remi- history reminds those two of each other, and this was a man that would kill his own people uh, at will and, and always wielded terror and fear. So King Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem as he is seeking to subdue the entire world and, and subdue all these nations so that they would pay tribute to him and his wealth would grow. And he overthrows Jerusalem, he burns the temple, he destroys the city, but he doesn't stop there. And there's some points in the text here that, that, that give us indication of his desire to humiliate God's people to humiliate God's people, not just to get their treasure or get their, their tribute, but to take their faith symbols from their, from their temple, to, uh, to destroy their past, to destroy their present by burning the city, burning the temple, and destroying the temple. But he also sought to destroy their future. We're told that he, that he takes the best and the brightest of the young men of Israel and takes them into his service. And so he takes them from the nobility and takes them from the king's family. And he brings them into his own service as a way to, to intentionally indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. To not only destroy the past and destroy the present, but to destroy the future, to hijack the future. And he would then train them to become government leaders and advisors to him. And and they would undergo a three-year period of an intentional brainwashing where they would systematically be indoctrinated in the the culture and the literature of Babylon and the ways of Babylon and to worship the king and to serve the king. And, And the idea being if they can change the way that they think, if they can change the things that they believe, then they'll change their behaviors and they will fall in line. And... While this was intentional on his part, we have an enemy today that is seeking to do the same things for us in our own lives, seeking to assault us and assault the best and brightest of our own culture through media, through movies, through music, through the things that they see and the things that we see and are exposed to on a regular basis. So whether it's advertisements and things that sort of come to us uh, unsolicited or things that we can seek out, we have an enemy. His name is Satan. He is seeking to change the way that we think, to change the things that we believe so that he will change our behavior. And we will be in line with him. And we have to fight against that. We have to stand against that. We have to stand against that. And we talked about this in the Made to Thrive series that we just finished up last week. That that you don't thrive in your relationship with God. You don't thrive spiritually and relationally and mentally and physically and financially on accident. There's intentionality. You have an enemy who is intent upon bringing you down. We have to be intentional in fighting against that. And you can't passively be a Christian today. We don't live in a culture where the majority of culture is pointing to Christ. We live in what is largely becoming a post-Christian culture where it's sort of after Christ. We see the, the results of this in Europe and we see where the majority culture is no longer pointing to Christ. You can't just get in and follow the waves and find your way to Christ somehow. That The majority culture is not going towards Christ. 
And so we have to be even more vigilant, diligent, sorry, vigilant and diligent. You see what I did there? I merged two words together. It doesn't work. But you can't passively be a Christian today. You can't, you can't just show up for an hour a week or 50 minutes a week for those of you that were a few minutes late. That's one reason I often go 10 minutes long. It's just for the people that show up late so they get their full hour in. You can't show up once a week. It's like, it's like saying, well, I'm going to go over to the buffet and I'm going to eat all I can eat for an hour and think I'm going to be good to go for the week. You'll be malnourished. You'll be starving. And eventually your stomach will shrink so much that when you do show up to the food, you can't take very much of it in without getting sick. There's a good spiritual parallel there. You can't work out once a year on January 2nd and be healthy and vibrant we have to exercise. We have to put the right things into our body. We have, to, we have to do these things. You can't fill your gas one time and say you're good to go. You're going to have to maintain that thing. You're going to have to put gas in it on a regular basis. You're going to have to change the tires every now and then. You're going to have to do things in order to maintain that relationship. And the same is true. And the purpose for all of that, the purpose for the time that we spend in worship with brothers and sisters in unity together, the time that we spend every day in the Word of God and in prayer, and the time that we spend serving and, and being in relationship with other believers, in fellowship with other believers, and reaching out into the world, all of that is that we would have the strength to stand. Paul says in, in his letter to the Ephesian church, right at the end, he, he says uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it's on the screen. You don't have to turn there necessarily. He says, finally, as he's closing this great letter, this great uh, piece of Christian doctrine, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. He goes on and he describes this, this spiritual armor that we would put on. I would encourage you to read that passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Read it frequently as we go through this. It will remind you that when we take a stand, we are taking a stand against the devil and his schemes. We are not taking a stand against other people. We do not war with flesh and blood, Paul says. We war against the spiritual forces that oppose Christ. And so even when there is a person on the other side of the issue, we're not standing against other people. We're standing against the enemy. And it's important to remember that and to make sure that we are standing at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. And if you never, ever stand out, if you always blend in, you might, you might pray about that. That could be an indication that, that fear has prevented you from taking a stand. Because the Christ that we follow, the Christ that we are a disciple of, often stood out. He often stood out. He always did it in the right time, the right way, for the right reasons, for the right things. But he often stood out. And if we are following him, there will be times when we are called to stand out. So let's look at the time uh, that we're going to focus on today when, when Daniel chooses to stand out. In verse 6, we continue the story. Among these, among these young men that were taken to be trained and put into the king's service, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now I want to pause right here. 
Abednego does not exist. You want to talk, play a little game of pastoral pet peeves? I hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all the time, but there's no Abednego. It's Abednego. Can you help me out with this one? There's a whole world out there that thinks it's Abednego, and we can start turning the tide right now if we say it right. Abednego, Abednego. All right, sorry, we'll get back into the story. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So there's a couple things going on here. We're here about these four boys from the land of Judah. We have reason to believe they were about 12 to 15 years old. So they were young, uh, young men, not yet fully grown, not yet uh, fully, um, fully matured. They were uprooted from their family. They were taken over a thousand miles away. Not only that, but there was no home to go back to. It was destroyed. Their family had been carted off as well, but they were separated from their family. And not only that, but they are to- we're told that they're given new names and they're giving- given a new diet. And if you've ever read Exodus and Leviticus, you know that diet was pretty important to the whole law and the way that, that the people of God in the Old Testament worshiped God and in the things that they do. So this is really interesting. The names represent their identity. Uh, many, many times the name literally proclaimed something, prophesied something over a person, or pointed to, uh, to their father or to their lineage or uh, to who they were or who God said they were or to some blessing that had been spoken over their lives. And so when their names are changed, their names are changed from Hebrew names that had great significance. Daniel is the name meaning God is my judge. God is my judge. Anytime you see L, E-L in a Hebrew name, that's pointing to God. Or A-H can also mean that. So in Hananiah, we see God is gracious. That's literally what the name Hananiah meant, was God is gracious. Mishael meant who is what God is. So uh, so he, he embodied God, essentially, is what his parents were saying there. And Azariah meant God has helped. So in each of these cases, their name points to God in some way. Their name uh, references their identity as a worshiper of God, as a worshiper of the one true God, the God Yahweh. And they get new names, and their new names, no doubt, pointed to Babylonian gods. And we're, we're pointing uh, to them, and it's a systematic breakdown of their identity and their sense of dignity. That's big part of that changing names. Incidentally, we're told on the other side of this that when we come to Christ and when we're ushered into eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to get a new name, a name that is our true identity, our true name in Christ. And I I think that God God does this as well. He does this uh, for us as well. So their names are changed. And I find it interesting, Daniel doesn't throw a fuss about this. But when the food changes, and we're told that In verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. You see, he knew that that was meat and wine that had been dedicated to idols or sacrificed to idols. He knew that this was way beyond just, well, it's kind of outside the dietician's program. This This was going to defile him as a believer in Jesus Christ. This was going to be something not external like his name, but internal as far as who he was. And that's where he chooses to take his stand. 
And I find that interesting because it would have been really easy to rationalize this. We don't know how many of these young men there were, but we know that only these four stood out from the crowd. So it would have been very easy to rationalize this, say, well, you know, God's got to understand this. I mean, guys got to eat, right? It's not going to hurt anybody. It's, it's just, you know, you know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. When in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do. But he doesn't. He says we, he resolved. He resolved in his heart. And that points to a predetermined resolution, that it was something that he decided in advance. And I've talked about this before. It's really important that we make these types of decisions ahead of time, that, that you decide the things that you're going to take a stand on. And you make a decision. You resolve in your heart prior to that. If you're a young person, you make a decision. I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. Until I'm married, that's a decision that you make in advance. You don't make that when emotions are running high because that's when reasoning is running low. You make that decision in advance. And when you get married, you make a decision. I'm not going to have private conversations with members of the opposite sex that might lead to an unhealthy emotional attachment or or you make a decision as a young person I'm not going to I'm not going to drink I'm not going to do the party scene I'm not going to go with the flow on that I'm going to take a stand against that maybe you take you decide in advance I'm going to live in a budget we're going to live on a budget and we're not just going to buy the things that look shiny and nice or we're not just going to do the thing that sounds fun. We're going to live within a budget, live within our means and not, not just spend and spend and spend. Or maybe it's spending time with God and that investment that you make in your relationship, you decide in advance, I'm going to do this. I'm going to set the alarm earlier. I'm going to plan ahead. I'm not going to wait until the end of the day when I'm tired and I'm drowsy and I'm, I'm going to decide in advance and make a decision or be going to church, or guard your eyes and the things that you see, and on down the road, you make a decision. And Daniel did this. He made a decision in advance. And it looks like a one-time event. We read about it in verse 8, but think about this. This was a decision that he lived out every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for the rest of his life. We have reason to believe he lived into his 70s or 80s. He made a decision. And he took a stand three times a day for the rest of his life. It wasn't for public show. It was a, a bold display of his faith in God and his desire not to be defiled. He wasn't just seeking attention. And we see that from the next few verses and the way that he goes about this. He doesn't just take a stand. He takes a stand in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. In verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And I love this. We talk about taking a stand for the right thing at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons. We see incredible wisdom in Daniel here. He doesn't just go in, you know, he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego grab their picket signs and picket the lunch table. He doesn't do anything like that. He goes privately to the one responsible for the decision and presents an alternative, presents a test. He says, just try this. Try this for 10 days. Try this for 10 days. And he shows us you can You can stand out in the wrong way. And it happens far too often. 
But when you have the wisdom to stand out in the right way, when you, when you pray up, when you choose to do things the way that Jesus would do them, when you choose to follow the examples that we find in Scripture, you find the wisdom to stand out in the right way, and you might even inspire somebody else to stand as well. Like the story I opened with, we see Daniel resolving in his heart, and yet it's not just Daniel who gets this little test. We see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also find the courage to stand. And that's our bottom line today. We see this in this story, and we're going to see it again, is that courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. Courage to stand inspires others to stand. The courage to stand for what is right or to stand firm in your faith might encourage someone else to stand. We see this happening with Daniel, that he had the courage to stand and that courage was contagious and others found the strength to stand as well. Is there a time in your life where your courage has inspired someone else to be courageous or when somebody else's courage gave you the courage to stand? This is why we need fellowship. This is why we need to be one as a body of Christ. When my courage is running low, maybe your courage is just starting to peak, and we can share that courage together. Courage is contagious. The courage to stand is contagious. And then we hear in the last few verses of this chapter that to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set, by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. You see, in response to that resolution... Daniel received wisdom and understanding that was unparalleled. God gave them knowledge. God gave them and his friends supernatural wisdom, supernatural ability. They stood out from the crowd in their wisdom and in their knowledge, not just in their diet. You see the relationship there? And it's interesting to me to consider that they have just blended in. If they had just gone with the flow, if they would just eaten the food and not stood out in the right way at the right time for the right reasons then history would not have recorded anything about them. There would be no book of Daniel if Daniel had not chosen to stand and to stand out. And if he had not chosen to stand out in the right way, he probably would have said, well, fine then, just starve or be beheaded because you have opposed the king's rule. But because he stood out in the right time, the right way, the right reasons, not only did he receive a blessing, but he encouraged, his courage was contagious, and others came alongside with him. He didn't just stubbornly refuse to eat. And time and time again, as we walk out these doors, time and time again, you're going to be lured to blend in or you're going to have an opportunity to take a stand and to stand out in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. And Daniel shows us that our courage is contagious. I think it's better to be remembered for standing out in the right way at the right time for the right reasons and forgotten for blending in. So nobody would know Daniel's name if he had just chosen to blend in. And so I want to encourage you to take your stand. Maybe the, maybe the Holy Spirit has already tapped you on the shoulder and, and pointed to an area in your life where you could be taking a stand, where you could stand for God, where you could stand against 
the culture, or even stand against a, an idea of cultural Christianity, this idea that you just show up to church once a month or once a week if, if you're really inspired, and you're good to go. But rather to, to stand against that, to stand up, to stand daily in the presence of God, with the presence of God, and everything that you do, to take your stand against the devil's schemes, to know that he has schemes for you. Not just for us, but for you specifically. That the devil has schemes for the person in your chair. And that you can stand against that. That you can put on the full armor of God. That you can stand firm. So I don't know how this message applies to you. Maybe you came through these doors far from God. And you feel something stirring inside of you to take a stand for Christ for the first time. Or maybe you've done that and you've taken that stand for Christ and you've identified yourself as a believer and yet it's become easy to sort of blend in and go with the flow. Or maybe there's a specific situation that is on your mind right now, in the workplace, in your home life, in your personal life, and you know it's time to take a stand. Whatever the case may be, My hope is that you'll respond in faith to that conviction, that you'll respond in faith to whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, and that you'll have the courage, the courage to stand, that you might have the courage to invite somebody to church or invite somebody again, even though they said no once, or that you would have the courage to share your faith, to witness with someone, to point to your Savior that you would have the courage to step out of some sin that has entangled you. Whatever the case may be, may you have the faith to respond to God today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us to respond in faith to it. There are a number of different ways that we might respond here, Lord, but I pray that for each individual that we would, that we would respond in faith, that we would take a stand for you, Lord, and we thank you for taking a stand for us. We ask you to have your way in these next few moments, that nothing would prevent us from responding to you, nothing would prevent someone from coming forward to an altar or to writing the name of someone who needs to take a stand or someone who's on our heart today, placing that on the cross, however we choose to respond, Lord. Have your way in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.